1: Rising inequality is one of the great economic challenges of our time, and there's widespread agreement among economists that it's not a good thing, and something ought to be done about it. Or not. What if the cure is far worse than the disease? What if the only way to address rising inequality is total war? Not just a rebellion or a skirmish here or there, but total war, total revolution, state collapse, or of course, plague. Welcome to Bloomberg Benchmark, a happy show about the global economy. I'm
2: Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics in Washington today. And I'm Scott Landman, an Economics Editor in Washington. And Dan, when you said, what if the cure for inequality is far worse than the disease? Well, what if it is a (laughs) disease.
1: Well, hopefully our guest is going to
2: clear all of that up
1: for us. He's Stanford Professor Walter Scheidel. He's studied inequality, its ups and downs since before we were in the cave and probably a bit before then. He's the author of a new book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Walter, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, no one could accuse you of going small in your scope for this book. I read portions of it and came away profoundly depressed. Am I missing something?
3: No, that's probably a pretty good description of my overall thesis.
2: So can you tell us a bit about the scope and breadth of the book? I mean, you you go back and cover not just all the way back to the Stone Age of, of humans, but you, you talk about gorillas and apes and the state of society. And, uh, I, and I was struck by your, your, your statement that the natural state of inequality is for it to keep growing in the absence of, of shocks like wars and plagues. Is that what you set out to show? Or what was your aim in originally uh, coming up with this idea?
3: Again, that's a pretty fair summary of my overall thesis. Um, What I tried to do was really to track the evolution of inequality in a very long run of history, which nobody has really done. People usually look at particular times and places, but nobody has really taken five steps back and tried to view thousands of years of history and see if there were any uh, systematic patterns to be observed. And what I found was that indeed, as you mentioned um, earlier, there is an overarching pattern, which is if you look at hundreds and thousands of years of history, every time we see a major compression and inequality in the distribution of income and wealth every time this compression was linked to some major disaster that usually involved a great deal of human suffering, uh, death and destruction. And that's really true regardless of whether you look at antiquity or the Middle Ages or the modern period.
2: So you come up with uh, four ways, you call, I think you call them the four horsemen of inequality. What, what exactly term, what term did you use again?
3: I use that uh, term of the Four Horsemen in analogy to the Apocalypse of John because it turns out that those violent shocks come in four flavors. So the Four Horsemen seem to me to be an appropriate simulate.
2: Now, now three of those have to do with kind of war and revolution, and the fourth one has to do with plague and pandemics. Uh, You have a chapter in your book about the Black Death and how that uh, eliminated so many millions of people that it caused such a rush. To uh, you know, for for laborers to to get uh, wage hikes, they they were asking for raises like you wouldn't believe. It. It's nothing like we probably ever see in our company, but or maybe we can cut that part out.
1: Well, know. this would be like <laughs> a whole new spin on the Phillips curve, right?
2: It really it really would. And and actually, one interesting thing was that you wrote was that people in the um you know during that time in England, for example, they were so flush with opportunities for wage gains that they could actually demand meat pies and ales from their bosses at that time. Now, black humor aside, uh, what was it about plagues that was, you know, that was so uh, key to to changing the equation on inequality?
3: It's really a Malthusian effect. Uh, It usually worked only in pre-modern and agrarian societies, where there was a lot of pressure on the land, there was a lot of underemployment. And when a really severe plague came in, like the Black Death in the 14th century, it would kill a third or maybe half of all people in a place like England, that really drove up the price of labor. And at the same time, it reduced the value of land and other forms of capital. So simultaneously, the poor were suddenly less poor and the rich were less rich. And so that gap between rich and poor narrowed very considerably because employers had to find labor in order to bring in the harvest uh, to manufacture and so on. And the only way of doing this was by raising wages, as you said, by 100 hundred, two hundred 200% in some cases.
1: But did that really alter the structure of the economy? Sure, it made the labor market tighter. But were the fundamental parameters of the organizing of economic life, were they really
3: rocked by the plague? They were not totally transformed, and that's a very important aspect of my thesis in that every time one of those violent dislocations occurs and that brings about a compression in in inequality, well, these effects tend to fade over time. So if you look at the plague, the epidemic uh, will eventually recede, The population will recover. It will go back to where it came from in terms of overall size. And because the underlying economy hasn't really changed all that much in the meantime, you're going to go back eventually up to square one, and you're going to end up with levels of inequality like the ones that used to be in place before the plague struck.
1: So we go through these cycles where inequality increases and increases and increases, and then kaboom! Then we kind of start again for another 100 or 200 years. Then it's kaboom again, and we start again.
3: Yeah, you can think in terms of periodic resets. And the only question is, how long are the intervals in between those violent shocks? They used to be quite long in the past because things simply moved at a slower pace uh, than they do today. Uh, In the more recent past, this seems to have accelerated quite a bit, which accounts for the fact that inequality has been rising in much of the developed world for the last generation or so, because the shocks of the world wars have receded uh, much more rapidly than they would have done. In the past.
1: So let's get to those world wars. Now, it's fair to say the past hundred years has had more than its share of major shocks to the system. If I read you correctly and your case study on Japan, you're saying it's not so much the war itself, though that certainly wipes out factories and population, it's the policies that are put in place during the war and in some instances cemented after the war that really addressed the issue.
3: That is correct. In order to fight something like World War II, governments had to mobilize the population in its entirety. They had to draft millions of men into the military, Mm -hmm. but they also had to mobilize the civilian population to produce goods and services for the war effort. And it was only possible if you raised taxes on income and wealth to levels that were truly unprecedented in history. It was only the war that gave governments the power uh, to do so And people um, had to go along with this. There was massive government intervention in the private sector, in the economy, wage controls, rent controls, uh, and a number of redistributive measures uh, to mobilize workers, to mobilize soldiers. And, of course, these funds had to be taken from those people who were wealthy. And the overall result, within just a few years in many of these cases, was massive redistribution of income and wealth.
2: Now, if Japan had won the war... Would the result have been different with respect to uh, the leveling of inequality in Japan?
3: Uh, apparently not, because by the time of the, say, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, virtually all the leveling that we can observe in the Japanese record had already occurred. And uh, World War II is really a very interesting case in that it didn't matter whether a country lost or won. If you look at the winners, so to speak, if there were any winners in a meaningful sense, the United States, uh, Great Britain, they underwent massive leveling just as the defeated Axis powers did Germany and Japan and Italy. And even what we would classify as bystanders, say Sweden, which was technically neutral in this conflict, uh, shows very much the same pattern. So very few countries in the world at the time remained unaffected uh, by this effect.
1: Now, Germany and Japan are kind of synonymous with their safety net, with a well-developed infrastructure. And, you know, an intolerance for instability. Can that be traced to the economic programs that developed and then were extended in the aftermath of the war? So are you sure it didn't matter who won or lost?
3: Well, if you just look at the overall outcomes, you see they're quite similar. Now, if you look at what has happened since, that may well be a different story. It may well be that countries that were particularly heavily affected by the war because of occupation and destruction like Germany, like Japan, like France, for instance – Uh, in those places, the institutions may have been transformed in a more dramatic fashion than, let's say, in in the U.S. or in Canada or in Australia, countries that were less, by comparison, less heavily um, affected. And that, in turn, may explain part of the divergence we have seen in the last few decades where inequality has gone up quite dramatically in English-speaking countries and not so much in continental Europe or parts of East Asia. So, Walter, let's move to the present day. You have
2: rising inequality uh, in developed nations. It's gotten a lot of press in the United States. You yourself referred to uh, the recent seminal book by Thomas Piketty as a baseline for what the kinds of uh, things that people are studying now. Is there a cure for inequality now besides total war or Is it just going to continue rising until we get to that point?
1: Well, more importantly, I think Scott's beating around the bush a bit too much. (laughs) When is the next horrific bust-up? If inequality is rising as much as people like Piketty and yourself note, then we're due for total war, are we not?
3: So these are really two different questions. Let me address them in turn. Uh, One is that it's certainly possible to do something about income and wealth inequality in an incremental fashion. The one thing that's unlikely to happen anytime soon is a return to the low levels of inequality that the post-war generation enjoyed for exactly the reasons that are outlined, because there hasn't been a major violent shock recently to uh, bring about really dramatic change. Now, another question is whether rising inequality by itself might usher in another violent shock. Right? The idea would be if inequality gets too high, maybe there would be a revolution or there would be more incentive for warfare or the destabilization of states. That's really something that hasn't been particularly well studied, which may sound quite surprising, but it's true. Uh, as far as I can tell, there hasn't been any systematic relationship in history between high inequality inequality and these violent shocks. The violent shocks always drive down inequality, but inequality doesn't necessarily lead uh, to those violent shocks. So in that sense, it's actually very difficult to project what the future holds in that respect.
2: So you disagree with the uh, widely studied notion, this came from a United Nations report a few years ago, that the higher the Gini coefficient, the greater the chance of unrest in countries? Or do you see that, is that consistent with what you're saying?
3: Uh, This has been empirically established for developing countries. People have looked at civil war, at state breakdown in developing countries over the last 50 or 60 years. And if you do that, you do indeed find a correlation between inequality on the one hand and the likelihood of state breakdown. But more recently, people have taken a closer look at this. And what they found is It's not necessarily the kind of inequality that we have, say, in our society, uh, where you can simply distinguish between the top 1% or 10% or 50% and measure inequality in this way. It's really inequality between groups, ethnic groups in these post-colonial countries uh, that seems to trigger civil unrest. So if one group is favored over another, which often happens uh, in those regimes, that can trigger civil war. It doesn't seem to be overall inequality that has a very strong effect on this outcome. And there is really no comparable research that I'm aware of for advanced economies. They are far too stable to be susceptible to this particular effect. There are simply no civil wars or revolutions in countries that have a per capita income of more than a few thousand dollars a year. In
1: 1914, did they think their economy was stable and advanced?
3: They thought exactly as we do today that their economy was stable and advanced and that a massive war conflagration was very unlikely and they were proven wrong. So in that sense, as I said, it's very difficult to predict what history uh, has in store for us. It's just that if you look at the four factors that I've identified, it's very unlikely that any of them are going to return anytime soon. If there is going to be another war, it would have to involve major countries, the US, China, Russia. It's, go, it's not going to be like World War One or World War Two. It's not going to be a mass mobilization war with millions of people fighting in the trenches. It's going to be a very different kind of conflict because of technological change that has occurred in the meantime, some kind of cyber war. Um, There is currently no credible intellectual infrastructure for transformative revolution. There are no Bolsheviks lurking in the wings waiting to overthrow governments, and if they tried, they wouldn't really stand a chance. States are much more stable than they used to be, and even though there could in principle be a new plague, we are now very well-equipped and increasingly well-equipped to deal with this kind of challenge because of advances in genetics and monitoring. So the traditionally powerful mechanisms are not no longer available right now, and they're unlikely to return in the foreseeable future.
1: Uh, And you forgot to say it'll be over by Christmas. (laughs) You know, um, I'd love to say, Walter, that I look forward to more of your work and a sequel, but I'm kind of afraid what the sequel might show.
3: Well, I'm now thinking of of studying more systematically what I mentioned earlier, whether inequality does in fact lead uh, to violent breakdowns and... Well, again, we'll see what happens.
2: Uh, I know one thing for sure. This subject will give us coverage, ideas and topics for years and years to come. And uh, we're grateful that you were able to come on the show and discuss your book. It's a really fascinating, uh, a fascinating tome. Thank you very much, Walter.
3: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
2: Benchmark will be back next week, and until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, our newly revamped Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us, and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at ScottLandman. Dan, you are at? Moss underscore eco. And our guest is at at Walter Scheidel. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time. See ya.